So this morning we uh, read, um, Emily read for us the triumphal entry account out of Luke's gospel. The triumphal entry is found in all four gospels, and I encourage you to go there and read all four accounts, you know, the gospels. Uh, Some people like to say because there are differences between them that there's contradictions, and that's really not true. It's it's really four uh, eyewitness or, or witness statements or witness accounts of what happened, and so they give a slightly different perspective in terms of things remembered from that day as they share them with us. I like Luke's account because it ties in nicely to where we want to go today. So we read um, Luke 19 earlier. So now if you would turn with me back to Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament, that's in the crunchy section of your Bible. So back there, the part that you probably don't use that much, but hopefully you do. And so we are going to read in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, but we're going to focus on the last four verses of the passage. So in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, now while I was speaking, and this is Daniel as he's praying there, so we're sort of coming into the middle of a scene. Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication uh, before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, at the beginning, uh, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision." Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince... There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, until the end of the war of uh, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Lord, would you please give your understanding to the reading of your word this morning. And as we study it together, we trust that you will be our teacher, you will be our guide. And Lord, we pray that we would be able to just clear away all of the distractions and the clutter from our lives and give you a few minutes of our time today to let you be our guide, to let you speak to us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So going back to Luke's gospel, so you're probably going to want to keep your finger in both places this morning. 
In Luke chapter 19, we just read this account of the triumphal entry. And you may wonder, of course, and I think it's appropriate, uh, to ask the question, what is Palm Sunday all about? Why do we consider it each year as a part of what we go through? You know, we have these things on the Christian calendar. We have Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. And Good Friday and Easter, we understand that Good Friday, you know, we look at the time where Jesus had been crucified and what happened on that day as he was laid in the grave and the discouragement of the disciples and the significance of his crucifixion and his death. And then on Easter Sunday, of course, Resurrection Sunday, we look at the resurrection of our Lord and the significance of the resurrection. And then we come to other holidays like Christmas, and we look at the birth of Christ and what it means for us that he was born into this world and came to be with us, to be among us. But Palm Sunday is probably the most puzzling of those holidays and those events that we look at. And we read the triumphal entry as we did today, and we read about Jesus telling his disciples, hey, uh, this is the Sunday before he's crucified. And he's going to ride into Jerusalem. From, he's going to ride from the top of Mount Olives. And I don't know if you've ever been there. Listen, if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, t- t- take it, jump at it. You need to go and you need to see it. Seeing it, uh, it's often been said that, you know, a seven or 10 day trip to Israel is like a, a year or two in Bible college. And that's totally true. So Jesus uh, got the donkey. He got up on top of the Mount of Olives And the road just kind of snakes down because it's a fairly steep incline. And as he was riding down on that donkey, the people had come out and they were laying down their cloaks and palm branches and whatever they could find to to make the path. And they were were doing this as sort of an enactment for welcoming a noble, for welcoming a king into their city on this day. And yet... You get the sense as you read the four accounts of the, uh, tri- this, uh, the triumphal entry that as Jesus came in, that they were almost sort of mindlessly going through the motions and that they weren't fully sure or convinced of what are we doing and why are we doing this? And as they're writing down, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees were there and they were, of course, violently opposed to this because Jesus, for the first and the only time in his earthly ministry, was welcoming praise. And in Psalm 118, we find a declaration there uh, of that day saying, you know, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna translated means save, save now, O Lord, save and bring prosperity. And so they are shouting this out to Jesus and they are just calling upon him, just saying, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as I mentioned earlier, they're, they're shouting out, you know, who is this king of glory, the Lord, strong and mighty. But they're saying that about Jesus. Jesus is coming and he's presenting himself on this day as their Messiah. And that's the, the number one, the, the first and most important significant thing that he's doing. But they don't fully realize it because they are accepting him on the surface, but in their hearts, they are not. And so that's why we're going to go back at Daniel and take a look at the prophecy in the Old Testament that tells about this day. And why that day had to happen. But there's something significant there at the end of that passage in Luke. And I want to go there with you. It's in Luke 19.41. And it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it. 
So if this was such a joyful day, why was Jesus weeping over the city as he was riding on this donkey and looking over the city and looking at all the people and hearing the praises? Why was his heart sad? And here's what he said in verse 42. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, now I want to stop right there and refresh your, your memory. He's in Jerusalem and the people are the Jews. So these are the people he's speaking to. So let's start again. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave, you, leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, as we read that, we say, what is that all about? What is he talking about? What does that mean? So uh, that's the point at which we want to turn back to, to Daniel chapter 9. And so hopefully you have a mark there and you can go back to Daniel chapter 9. And as we picked it up in verse 20, we find Daniel in a time of prayer. And he's seeking the Lord. And what he had been doing just before that, as he had been reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he realized that the captivity uh, of his people in Babylon, Daniel was in Babylon, um, was coming to an end. They had been in captivity for 70 years. And when they had been taken captive, Daniel was a young man, somewhere between maybe 12 and 17 Uh, as he was taken into captivity. So now 70 years later, you can do the math, he's there, it's very close to the end of that time of that captivity. And Daniel had been reading the prophet Jeremiah. He had gotten a hold of a copy of the scroll. And he understood that the reason why that they were in captivity was because of their sin as a people, the Jewish nation, against God. And how they had rebelled against God and they had set up idols both physically, literally, and in their hearts, and how they had rejected the goodness of God and rejected his law in their hearts. And so Daniel was grieving, and he was weeping, and he was praying, and he was doing something that I dare I say that any of us rarely do. He was confessing the sins of his people, not just his own sins, but he was lamenting, lamenting and laboring before God for the sins of his people, because now he's realizing why they're there. And he wants God, he's pleading with God to bring redemption. And so in this moment as he's praying, as we read there in verses 20 through 23, the angel Gabriel appears to him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were having a time of quiet prayer and just pouring out my heart before God, and all of a sudden an angel shows up, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, buddy, I'm here. It might freak you out a little bit, right? But that's what happened. This, this angel, Gabriel, comes and visits him and he says, listen, listen in verse 22. He informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Now, he's about to do that with respect to one of the most amazing and significant prophecies in all of Scripture. But uh, one of the points I want to make as we move into this this morning is, don't we need skill to understand? Don't we need God to speak to us? So let's, you know, like Daniel, seek the Lord in prayer. 
and call upon him. And he says in verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, as you began to pray, Daniel, the command went out and I have come to tell you. In other words, a command from heaven, God said, Gabriel, go down and talk to Daniel and and visit him and give him a word. So, uh, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Now, how significant is that? That the first you know, message that the angel gives him is not, okay, here's your instructions, here's your orders, soldier. But the first thing he tells him is that the, the word from the throne is that God loves you. And I hope that you would hear and receive that word this morning, although it was spoken to Daniel many years ago, as God's word to you this morning as you're listening, that you are greatly beloved by God the Father. And how do we know this? Not because we might be taking a verse out of context in Daniel, but because of the cross of Jesus Christ. That communicates the love of God loudly and clearly to us. So he says, this voice went out, this command, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. And one thing Daniel illustrates here as we get into the prophecy this morning is that when we seek God diligently, so often we receive far more than we've asked for. He was seeking God, praying about things very specific, but God revealed himself to Daniel. God came with a word to him and said, you are my beloved. And sometimes that's way more important, isn't it, than the answer to our questions. So here we are in verse 24. Perhaps you've read this before. But this is what some have called the 70 weeks of Daniel. Your Bible might have that heading in there. So as we read verse 24, now this is what the angel came to give him understanding about as he gives him this prophecy. So Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people, the Jews, the Jewish people, his people, and for your holy city. And that phrase, the holy city, in the Jewish context is always used of Jerusalem, no other city. So 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this is a prophecy that is coming to Daniel from the throne of God via the the hand and the mouth of the angel Gabriel. So let's break down this first verse. And the first thing he's telling Daniel is Daniel is sort of seeking, you know, when will you return us to our homeland? When when will our holy city be rebuilt And, and all of that? And as he's he's having these questions and asking, he gets somewhat of a different answer, a similar answer, but a different answer to what he was asking. So God sort of zooms out and says, I'm going to give you a bigger picture than what you were asking about. This 70 weeks, now people wonder, you know, what does this mean and how do we come to the understanding that we're about to explain? Well, Prior to this, in the context, Daniel had been thinking in terms of years. He'd been considering the prophecy, the 70 years that they had been sent to exile uh, at, at the hand of both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And so the angel speaks, 70 weeks are determined. And we might think, you know, a year plus a little bit. But this is one of those uh, Hebrew metaphors that means a week is a period of years. So 70 weeks, each week is a period 
of seven years. Um, in fact, some have said, uh, you know, if you understood the Hebrew language and the Hebraisms, as they call it, it would have been more clearly translated 70 uh, weeks of seven years. So if we think about that, 70 weeks times seven years, that would be 490 years, and that's the period that this angel is decreeing to Daniel. And so we already have questions, you know, what is this all about? What is this period of 490 years? And then he speaks about the Jewish people. He speaks about Jerusalem. And so one thing we have to remind ourselves of as we get into this is he is speaking specifically and distinctly to the Jewish people. The church is not in view here. We're going to get sort of an honorable mention further down. Uh, But he's speaking here about the history, God's prophetic plan for the nation of Israel. And so he gives uh, six purposes uh, that will be accomplished during this time. So he says, first, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Those are negative. And then there are positive things. After those things are addressed, he says, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So as we consider these six things, I'd like to polarize your thinking by saying that these six things can only be accomplished by God. This is not something that you and I could do. This is not something that any human being could accomplish. And so what is he talking about here when he says, for example, let's, you know, to finish the transgression, that during this period of time, God is going to accomplish these six things. The first one is to finish the transgression. The word finish is to restrain firmly or completely. So that means that God will once and for all take care of the issue of sin and and the word transgression uh, there's a di- there are different words that are in some ways uh, synonyms for each other when they refer to the concept or the word of sin. But this word transgression is a strong word for sin, which means to rebel. So make a little mental note whenever you see the word transgression as you're reading in the scriptures. Think of the word rebellion. So to make an end, uh, to rather to finish the transgression. And notice it doesn't say transgression, it says the transgression. So what is the transgression, the specific transgression that he is speaking of here? Now keep in mind, you know, they are in captivity because of their rejection of the rule of God in their lives because they didn't honor God in many specific ways. And God took them away for 70 years. But the time is coming, of which we are, are, we're reading today earlier in the Gospel of Luke, uh, namely the triumphal entry, and we know this because we've studied it, that on the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and they were crying out and saying, again, with their words, and it was a prophetic moment, they were crying out saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But those same people, three days later, are the ones who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And we already know that the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, that they had already rejected Jesus. Now, who was Jesus? He was none other than the Messiah. And so Israel, on the day that Jesus is is being led to the cross, 
is, is Israel rejecting their Messiah that God has sent to them. Now, the history of Israel is this. Every time God sent a prophet to them, they rejected that prophet. Often they killed the prophets or they, they at the very least beat the prophets and severely chastised them. So this has been Israel's history, that whenever God came and he, he wanted to minister to them, they rejected the work of God. They rejected God's provision for them. And so now, you, you remember during the time of Jesus's ministry, he told many parables, but remember the parable he told about the vineyard and the master came and he had bought a vineyard and then he had all these workers who were working in it. And then at the time of harvest, he sent someone to come and collect. And then they rejected that person and and beat that person or killed that person. And then the master did that several times. Then finally he said, okay, I've about had enough of this. I'm going to send my son to collect. They they owe me. They've been there as stewards of the vineyard. They they owe me the produce and they owe me the, the financial reward of my investment. And when they heard that the owner's son was coming... They said, ah, we will kill the owner's son and we will receive all of this reward for ourselves. And on the surface, the parable was sort of painting the picture of just greedy, evil people. But then Jesus took the parable and he turned it and he said, those other people were the prophets that God had sent that you rejected. And the son is me, God sending his own son. So he was painting the picture of the significance of Israel rejecting their Messiah. Now, coming back to Daniel, hopefully you can stick with me. I hope I'm able to lead you through this this morning. The transgression, which was yet future at that point, was the rejection of the Messiah. How do we know that? Let me share with you a few verses from the Old Testament as well as the New that point to this rejection of the Messiah. In Zechariah chapter 10, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Here is Zechariah 550 years before the crucifixion, prophesying of Jesus and, the, the, and, and this is the voice of the Messiah, Jesus saying, they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now, interestingly, the Apostle John picks up on this in his prophetic writing in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Listen, this is Jesus speaking in Revelation chapter 1. Behold, excuse me, John is saying this, behold, he is coming with the clouds, with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, because they will realize on that day that Jesus was their Messiah. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the second coming. Isaiah chapter 53, you could read the whole chapter really, but I'd like to read a few verses from that that speak of Jesus the Messiah. And it says in Isaiah 53 too, for he shall grow up before him, as a tender plant, this is the Messiah growing up before the Father, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is the rejection of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. The Messiah was cut off. And then finally in Isaiah 53, 11, God shall see the labor of his soul, that is Jesus, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So Jesus would come. He would die on the cross. He would present himself as their Messiah, yet they would categorically and outright reject him. And then to bring you forward into the New Testament, in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, it says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened now to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So what's happening here in Daniel chapter 9 is God is saying, I'm going to make an end of the transgression. Now our sin, all sin offends God, but the sin of his people rejecting him You see, we have to put it in a context, right? Consider your children, if you have children this morning, and your children coming to you, and as it were, making a gesture to you to say what they really think of you, and saying, you're no longer my mom or my dad, and I don't love you anymore, and I don't want to be a part of your household, and all that stuff you've given me, I reject it. I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. And that's the way it is when his people have rejected his Messiah. And so that is the transgression that he wanted to make an end of. Uh, The second thing is to make an end of sins. Now the word here used for sins is the general word that talks about the daily sins of life. You see, in the Bible, when you see the word sin and it's singular, it's referring to the principle of sin, the fact that we sin. But when you see the S on the end of sin, sins, It's talking about our daily propensity for sinning, meaning all the stuff we do all the time that sins and that, you know, is an offense to God. And so he says he wanted to make an end of the transgression. He was going to make an end of sins. And to make an end means to seal it up or to shut it up in a prison. And then the third one, to make reconciliation for iniquity. The word reconciliation is the word for atonement. So these are things that God wants to do with respect to sin. He wants to take care of the sin of the nation of Israel in rejecting their Messiah. He wants to take care of the sins of people. And he wants to make atonement for iniquity. And the word iniquity is another word for sin, but the nuance there would be evil. So when you see transgression, think rebellion. When you see iniquity, think evil. And then he says, here's the positives. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Only God could do that. How could God take sin, cover it, atone for it, make it right, and bring in righteousness? 
And the idea here is not just bringing in righteousness as a whole, but bringing in an age of righteousness. And so we believe, as we kind of take a step back and look now with the New Testament in our hand, that this is looking forward to the time of the Messianic kingdom, toward the end of the book of Revelation. And so we see in, uh, again, all over the Old Testament, but I'll read a couple of verses to you that sort of point to this. It says in Isaiah chapter 11, but with righteousness he, and we, that's a messianic passage, with, mess, with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips and he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Describing the Messiah. Jeremiah 23, there's tons of passages we could go to in Jeremiah, here's one. Jeremiah 23, 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Speaking of Jesus, In Revelation 19, again, taking you forward into the New Testament, Revelation 19, 11, the Apostle John says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus will bring in righteousness. The next thing it says is to seal up vision and prophecy. The idea of sealing up is it comes to an end, it stops, and that's because it comes to a completion or a fulfillment. He says to seal up vision and prophecy. The idea of vision in that day was the idea of sort of spoken prophecy. Think, think of Elijah and Elisha. Again, there was no written word of God at that time other than the, the five books of Moses. And so when God had ordained his prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they were speaking orally prophecy to the people. So when he says to seal up vision and prophecy as they would speak, as the prophets would speak, they gave vision. They gave an understanding, thus saith the Lord, they would say. And the idea of prophecy is the written prophecy, the things that we now have recorded by the major and the minor prophets. So he's saying here to Daniel, that I'm going to seal up vision and prophecy. And then the last thing is, he says, I'm going to anoint the most holy. And the implication there is the most holy place. People wonder, well, what is the most holy place? Well, we think of the temple. We think of of the inner place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. But I do not believe that he's speaking here specifically of a physical place on earth. I believe he's referring to, as you read the book of Revelation, Not the first temple, not the second temple, not the third temple, but the holy temple in heaven, where one day Jesus himself will reign from that temple. And we're given that description in the latter part of the book of Revelation. And so to anoint the most holy place. So in Daniel 9, 24, God is giving this sweeping panorama from the time that he's speaking there to Daniel until the end of the book of Revelation. So it's a prolific prophecy. So we come to verse 25. 
And he says, know therefore and understand. So now he gets into the details that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, in other words, until Jesus comes, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So this is the starting point. This is the beginning of the prophecy. So he says from the going forth of the command to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Here's the amazing part of the prophecy. When did the clock start? We know that as, as the angel spoke this to Daniel, that what had not yet happened, but what was about to happen was in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. We find King Artaxerxes speaking to Nehemiah and giving him a written decree that authorizes him to go back to Jerusalem. You see, earlier, 60 plus years earlier, Ezra had gone back to begin rebuilding the temple, the center of worship for Israel. But the city was desolate. The walls were broken down. And the whole idea of walls in ancient times was to keep the good in and keep the bad out. So as they rebuilt the temple, of course, there was risk that, that people would come, bad people, and, and pilfer and steal and tear down the temple again. So now, Nehemiah is getting the order from the king to go back and to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And if you've read the story of Nehemiah, you know that he goes back and he begins rebuilding the wall first before he begins building the city. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, we know historically that that day is March 14th, 445 BC, a very specific date. And then as we've looked at these uh, weeks here, these periods of seven years, notice he said there that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The first seven-week period that's called outer 49 years was the amount of time it took for Nehemiah to accomplish that and to rebuild the wall and the city. The 62 weeks, the additional, so 7 plus 62 is 69, that brings us to 483 years. So what happens in that first period of time, the, the 69 weeks? The clock started on March 14th, 445 BC. The Babylonian calendar was in effect, so it would be 360 day years. So as you just do the math, and I know how much you all love to do math on Sunday morning, it would, 483 years would equate to be 173,880 days. You're like, okay, that's cool. What does that mean? From the day, March 14, 445 BC, where King Artaxerxes gave this decree to Nehemiah, 173,880 days in the future. Guess what day that is. It happens to be the day, April 16th, 32 AD, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. This is the significance of the triumphal entry. This is the significance of Palm Sunday. This is a detail, I think you can see this, right? This is a very detailed prophecy that God gives. And he says, and he said here in that verse, he says, from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, the only time Jesus presented himself to Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel as their Messiah was the day on the triumphal entry. So this exacting prophecy that God has given, it should be awe-inspiring. It should be amazing to you and to me 
that God would do such a thing. Uh, J.R., can you bring up that slide for one moment? Uh, I don't know if you can see that, but the, the Passover week in that year would have been like this. Now, in the Old Testament, on the 10th of Nisan is the day that the lambs were selected for the Passover. The Passover would be on Wednesday night leading into Thursday. So on that day, the 10th of Nisan, according to Deuteronomy and Exodus, that's the day that the Passover lamb would be selected by the families to, to give to the priests to offer for their sins. You see, they had to set all this up because there were so many lambs that had to be sacrificed. On Palm Sunday, the 10th of Nisan, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the day he presented himself as the Messiah, is the day that he also was selected by God to be the Paschal or the Passover lamb. And he was the Passover lamb presented by God to the people as the one who would atone for their sins. Remember at the beginning of John's ministry, he looked at Jesus and he said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's on this day that that is being fulfilled. Thank you. You can take that down. So here we are. The Messiah has been presented to the nation of Israel on this day. And back in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, it says, and after the 62 weeks. So now he's dealing with what we call the 70th week, that last week in this prophecy. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So what does all this mean? What is this talking about? So after the 62 weeks, so Jesus has presented himself as Messiah. On Passover, he will be crucified as the Lamb of God. And it says, uh, after the 62 weeks, the, the day that Jesus has presented himself, he shall be cut off. This is a specific phrase that means to be killed. It means that he would die a sacrificial death, and he would have nothing for himself. And in the dying on the cross and Jesus being offered as the sacrifice for the sins of the people, he got nothing out of it. You see, his inheritance comes later. His inheritance, we're told, in part is the church. But his inheritance will be in the book of Revelation when everyone who has believed in him is gathered to him. That will be his inheritance. And he will be set up on the throne as king forever. Reading the book of Revelation, this all comes alive. So it says here that after the 62 weeks, after Jesus has died, he shall be cut off. And it says, but not for himself, meaning his atonement was not for himself. His atonement, his death was for other people. And so it is for us, isn't it? Jesus died for our sins that we might have a relationship with God the Father. But then he goes on, and it gets even more interesting. That next sentence there in verse 26, it says, and the people of the prince who is to come. You might want to circle the word prince. And then in the next verse, uh, Daniel 9, 27, it says, then he shall confirm 
And then it says, in the middle of the week, he shall bring. And the, uh, then it says, and of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. The prince, the he, the he, and the one are all the same person. So when he says in Daniel 9, 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, we know historically, undeniable, that in AD 70, Rome sent Titus Vespasian to the city of Jerusalem to take it by force. And in that battle, and you can Google this, it's, it's on Encyclopedia Britannica, it's all out there historically for people to see. On that day, when Rome came in with its appointed uh, king, it destroyed the city of Jerusalem and it tore the temple apart. Now that fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus spoke of when he said, um, you know, when I um, leave, you know, in time there's another people coming and they will take apart this temple and not one stone will be left upon another. So this prophecy here in Daniel 9.26 is speaking of the temple that would be destroyed in AD 70 by Rome. And so the people of the prince who is to come is very clearly identified for us, isn't it? Meaning it's going to be basically a Roman citizen from, from Europe. And so this sets in motion now the end times. You know, who will be the Antichrist? We don't know who the person will be, but we know he will be most likely a Roman from somewhere in Europe, most likely Italy. So it says, the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And it says, the end of it shall be with a flood. Whenever a flood is used in these contexts, it's always, it's not speaking of water. It's speaking of a military invasion. And so that is what happened. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. In essence, he's saying, from the time in AD 70, when the temple is destroyed and when Rome does this to the city, from then forward until the 70th week, Jerusalem, Israel will always be in torment. They will always be under siege. In other words, it's a prophecy that the peace of Jerusalem will not come until the Antichrist comes. And then it says in verse 27, then he, this prince who is to come, or now I believe it's referring to the Antichrist. We'll talk about that in a moment. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So this Antichrist will come in at the beginning of this 70th week, and he will broker a peace treaty. He will form a covenant with the nation of Israel. And when he does that, it will be between Israel and basically the world, but certainly with the Islamic world. And so he will come in and bring this covenant with many, it says, for one week. And again, one week is a period of seven years. But in the middle of the week, we would call that the midpoint of the tribulation. So staying with 360 days, halfway through the tribulation would be, you know, an exact number of days. And these days are mentioned to us in Daniel 12. They're mentioned to us during the book of Revelation. How many days it is? Three and a half years. And it says he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. You see, what happens is sometime leading up to the time of the tribulation, which is triggered by this peace treaty, that this prince will bring, the third temple, or rather, yeah, the, this temple will be rebuilt. And the sacrifices will have been restarted. The operation of the temple will have been restarted. And so now this, this heathen, so to speak, from a Jewish point of view, comes into the temple 
And he will bring an end to the sacrifice and offering by committing what is called the abomination of desolation. Matthew 24 tells us about this. This is spoken of in in many places. And it says, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So it's talking about here the second half of the tribulation when the Antichrist goes in and he declares himself to be God and he demands that he be worshipped. And we see this starting in Revelation 13 and going forward. That that brings an end to the daily sacrifice. It brings an end to the peace. So we'll see that, of course, he lied. Uh, They may have had three and a half years of peace, but that was all they were going to get. And and that this, you know, this goes all over the scriptures. It goes to Zechariah. It goes to uh, 2 Thessalonians. It goes to uh, Revelation. It goes all over the place talking about what's going to happen in that day. So when it says then he the, uh, there, he's talking about the Antichrist. Now here's some other uh, places where this person is referenced in Scripture, and this is just a few. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, we have this reference to what's called the little horn. That little horn is a reference to the Antichrist. In Daniel 9 here, he says the prince who is to come. That's another title given to the Antichrist. And then when it also says, as we just read, the one who makes desolate, that's the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist is referred to as the son of perdition. Also in that same passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he is referred to as the lawless one. In Revelation chapter 11 verse 7, he is referred to as the beast. And then John the apostle in 1 John chapter 2, chapter 4, and in the one uh, chapter of Second John, three times, John refers to the Antichrist. John is the only one who names him as the Antichrist. So these titles all refer to the same person. Again, we could read a number of scriptures here. I have them in my notes if you're interested, but for the sake of time, we won't go there. That talks about these names that are used of the Antichrist. So as we bring things to a close this morning... Someone wrote this, and I thought it was said it far better than I could. Gabriel didn't tell Daniel what would happen between the 69th and the 70th weeks. Because between Daniel 9, 26 and 27, there's a strange parenthesis. This prophecy has to do with the Jews, the Jewish temple and the city of Jerusalem. But the period of time between the 69th and the 70th week has to do with the church, the body of Christ. This was a mystery that God had hidden in the Old Testament and didn't reveal until the time of Christ. If you want to look that up, Ephesians chapter 3 tells you about this mystery, then Paul reveals that to us. Daniel wasn't told that the rejection and death of the Messiah would bring about a new thing, which was a spiritual body that would include Jews and Gentiles, in which all natural differences would be unimportant. One reason the Jewish legalists opposed Paul was because he put Jews and Gentiles on the same level in the church, and the traditionalists wanted to maintain the superiority of Jews uh, as they understood it in the law and the kingdom prophecies. Why do I say all this? What's the point of Palm Sunday? Because when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on that donkey, on that day, he kicked off the 70th week of Daniel. He brought an end to the first 69 weeks. 
And now what's happened as Jesus came in and this 70th week has been kicked off, we, we are in the church age, we are in the time where we are evangelizing the world, but the time is coming and it's coming soon when God will come back and he will rapture his church and take us out. And some, you know, we don't know when the rapture of the church will happen with respect to this peace treaty, but certainly the rapture will happen before that peace treaty when the Antichrist comes because when the Antichrist inks that peace treaty, it will kick off the time of the tribulation. So all of that means for us that the day of the triumphal entry started the clock and we are living in this interlude, this 70th week. And during this time, as we read the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus has made us righteous, that all those things that he made an end of for the Jewish nation, he's also made an end of for us. He's made an end of our transgressions and our iniquities. He's put an end to those things. He's given us the righteousness of Christ. We now, when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us as we look at ourselves. So often we look at ourselves by our failures, don't we? We look at ourselves by our sin. I mean, there would be no counseling or psychiatric industry if people didn't deal with guilt. But as a believer, your guilt has been dealt with. And I want to say to you this morning, if you are in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, then you are forgiven. And like Gabriel spoke to Daniel, you are beloved. And by the blood of Christ, if you believe in Jesus, you are made whole. You are made acceptable to God in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus, the beloved son. But in the beloved, we are made acceptable. So everything that Jesus did that day, when he rode that donkey into Jerusalem, set in motion our salvation. And praise God for that. Amen. Lord, thank you this morning for your word to us. Thank you for helping us understand the significance of these things. Lord, for those of us here this morning who know you, who are named by the name of Christ, and we are under your blood because we've believed and we've received We're so thankful, Lord. We just say thank you. We're grateful. We say hallelujah to you, Lord. For any who are listening this morning who may not have that peace and sense of security of knowing that their sins have been forgiven and that they're going to be with you one day in heaven, then we pray that this would become for them their moment when they would understand that you would bring that understanding to their heart that if they simply believe and receive and repent and turn from their ways and turn to you, that you impart to us salvation. And it's something that only you can give. And it's something that only we can receive. And so, Lord, thank you for that. I pray that you would do that mightily this morning for many who are listening. And so, Lord, as we worship you this morning going out, we're going to sing about you, the King of glory and worship you, and honor you, and love you. And we say all that, and we do all that because of one simple verse that you wrote through your servant, John, where you said, we can say that we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.